0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we talk to a player from the 1986-87 Ashes series who played for England.
1: My name is Chris Broad, former England cricket international and opening batsman.
0: He was recently part of Audie's Inside the Tour podcast, which is about that series. And we got him on to discuss his career, moving counties, playing Malcolm Marshall, facing cricket's first unplayable left armour, Bruce Reid, Murph Hughes, playing cricket in South Africa during apartheid, and his fiery temperament. I want to talk about your batting, and that's why you're here. You had a very good debut season in first-class cricket. You made some runs against the universities. I think you averaged about 36 or 37 and then for about three years, you average around 30, 31, 29 even. Take me through that. Was that teams working you out, do you think, a little bit? Or just bad luck or bad pitches? Or what, what happened back then?
1: I'd like to think that you jump straight into first-class cricket and become a, a perfect player right at the start. But uh, that doesn't happen. Rarely happens, I think. As far as I was concerned, it was about working out what I was good at and uh, what I wasn't good at. and you know, averaging 30 is not bad. It's not great, but it clearly wasn't going to be searching international honours at that stage. So I think the first three years were just basically finding my feet. You moved to Nottingham. How many years into your career was that? So five years into my career, I decided that I was stagnating a little bit at Gloucester and needed a, a new challenge. And Fortunately, various counties came in for uh, my services, one of them being Nottinghamshire. And with the likes of Clive Rice as captain, Richard Hadley, Eddie Hemmings, future internationals such as Bruce French and Tim Robinson in, in the team, it looked like a side that was going somewhere and a real challenge for me to step up. And it was playing at a test match venue, which Trent Bridge is a magnificent venue. So for me, it was a no brainer.
0: So I wondered how much it was about pitches because when you look back at your record, for Gloucestershire, you averaged 31. Now, obviously, some of that was early on, but you went back there later on. And when you went to Trent Bridge, you averaged 42 for them. I saw, I think it was a Matthew Engel piece where he described you as quite ambitious. Were you thinking that you just had to sort of push your career forward a little bit at that point?
1: I needed a challenge. I like a challenge in everything that I do. And I needed at that stage having... I felt found my feet a little bit in county cricket. I needed a challenge. I needed to be looked at as being something better than I actually was at that particular moment in time. You know, Trembridge was renowned in those days as being green and good pitches for fast bowlers. But actually, they were good pitches. They encouraged spin. There was some good bounce in there. Certainly, there was some sideways movement and good pace and bounce for the faster bowlers. But as a touch batsman, as I was, it was great for me because I was able to nick and nudge and build my innings around those sort of deliveries. So Trenbridge
0: was a, a perfect place for me, really. And from there, you almost get picked to play for England very soon after making that move. You've been playing at Gloucester and you go to Nottingham. You're still developing as a batter, clearly getting better at this point. You get picked to play for England and your first test series is the Blackwash. I'll try and get the bowlers right. Malcolm Marshall, Eldon Baptiste, Joel Garner, Michael Holding, Winston Davis. It's a pretty good bowling attack. How do you prepare for that? You would have faced some of them in county cricket, I'm assuming, before, but not all in a group.
1: Yes, that's very true. A lot of West Indian bowlers were playing in county cricket and applying their trade during their winter time in county cricket. And yes, I had faced pretty much most of them together. And facing a West Indies attack as a whole was a much bigger challenge. But I had a reputation of being able to play fast bowling reasonably well. And I think that's why I was selected in the first place. Whether I'd have been selected had I stayed at Gloucester, no one knows. But the fact that I'd started the season quite well at Trent Bridge, had this reputation of being good against the faster
0: bowlers, I think got me selected. Malcolm Marshall dismissed you five times in Test Cricket. And I was doing a, a piece recently on R. Ashwin and how he's ruined left-handers' careers. So... I think Steve Van Zale averaged about 40 in test match cricket and three against Ashwin. And Again, um, Eddie Cowan was another player, had this decent average in test cricket and then nothing against Ashwin. Malcolm Marshall is still arguably the most talented seam bowler that's ever existed. Almost a complete package in many ways. That's a lot of times to go up against someone like that early in your career, when you're only just discovering who you are as probably a test batter at that point.
1: Yeah. And I would rate him as being one of the best bowlers that I'd faced along with the likes of Richard Hadley. For me as an opening batsman, they were the real challenge because uh, both had good pace. Both were able to get the ball to seem off the pitch. Malcolm was able to swing the ball as well and keep you on the back foot by bowling some mean bouncers as well. So
0: he undoubtedly was, you know, one of the best bowlers that I faced. Is that what made him so tough? Because you said there that he could seam it in both directions and he could swing it in both directions. But as good as Richard Hadley was, probably batters weren't as worried about being hit. And also because Malcolm Marshall was a little bit shorter, a bit like we saw with Dale Stane, when he bowls the shorter ball, you can't really get out of the way of it because it skids. Is that the package or was there something else specifically that made him tough? He was aggressive as well. I played with Richard Hadley and I got on
1: quite well with Richard Hadley. I didn't know Malcolm Marshall and he had that aggressive look about him, which made you think this bloke is after my head. And so it was a real challenge to play against him. And as I said, right at the start, you know, I enjoyed a challenge. So yes, I faced him a number of times, got out to him a number of times, but I also scored one or two runs against him as well. So it was a great battle.
0: So English cricket at that stage was uh, fairly unprofessional obviously the county system was a little bit more professional but you were loaned to the england team to play i think you average about 20 or 22 in that blackwash series which i mean it's called blackwash so you know we're not bearing the lead of what happened to england in that particular series but what do you do as a professional at that stage what sort of system is there to say you've just gone up against one of the greatest teams of all time and one of the greatest bowlers of all time and we haven't even mentioned joel garner who i think is almost as good again What do you do about your game? Because if you go back to county cricket, it's not really a like-for-like situation. So how do you sort of develop from there on in?
1: I mean, you say that in those days, in the 80s, the test arena was very similar to the county arena where, you know, you did turn up a couple of days before the test match. You got to know your teammates. You went out and you played cricket. You're right. By today's standards, it wasn't terribly professional. But of course, we didn't have hindsight in those days. You know, we went out there, And we tried as best we could to show our skills and beat the opposition at the time. Admittedly, I think we set out as an England team not to lose the Test match, whereas now Test sides tend to set out in a Test match how to win. So the mentality has changed. But, you know, we had some great individuals, but we were a particularly strong team at that moment in time. And uh, so our
0: challenge was not to lose. But for you specifically, so you, you're thrown into this situation, you're still developing as a batter. What do you do after that series? Do you reevaluate your technique or do you say, do you know what? I did make some runs against my. I think you made 55 in, in your first game. So yeah. you, it, as you said, you did, it wasn't that you failed in every innings. You would have gone up against a great bowling attack. Did you th- have to rethink your game after that? Was it different to what you thought Test cricket was going to be? Yes, it was different. How did I react to it? Well, I mean, I
1: was left out at the end of that series uh, so didn't make the tour to India so I had a winter uh, at home um, not doing anything and feeling a bit aggrieved that I had faced the West Indies and hadn't had the opportunity of going to India on tour but that was the way the side was selected in those days it was very much horses for courses and I knew that I wasn't particularly good against spin so I kind of accepted it and got on and and when the next county season came along tried my best to score as many runs as I could again
0: you played one more test I think between the two the the West Indies series and the Australian series I think you played a one-off test against Sri Lanka and you made some runs there as you say you were left out the next big sort of cricket you played outside of county cricket is you actually made the decision to go and play first class cricket in South Africa for Orange Free State how did that come about Largely because of uh, Dr. Ali Bakr, he phoned up and asked
1: if I would be available to go and play in Orange Free State. It was their first season in the A section of the Curry Cup over there. And because I wasn't doing anything that winter, it suited me down to the ground to go over and play some more first-class cricket and gain an experience of playing in a different country.
0: Was there any political ramifications at the time or was it controversial? Because you're not, it wasn't like the Rebel players. You weren't representing a fake England team or anything. It's a bit different. There was a lot of players who went back and forth. Was there any pressure on you not to go? Nope. At that stage, none whatsoever.
1: It was myself going over to Orange Free State and playing first-class cricket.
0: You hadn't played cricket in Australia first-class. Had you played any club cricket or anything in Australia? I played down on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria
1: on melthoid pitches for a team called Somerville. Somerville, oh wow! Way back in uh, nineteen when was that seventy nine something like that. So a long, long time before going there in eighty six seven. But um, yeah,
0: it was a, an interesting experience incredible that you had to play in Somerville and your son had to play out in Hoppers Crossing and Werribee. You certainly picked two of the worst parts of Melbourne. And I'm allowed to say that because I'm from there. But uh, my big question was you go to South Africa and then obviously you turn up in 86, 87 in Australia. Did you feel a little bit more comfortable because obviously English pitches and playing very fast bowling is completely different to playing it in South Africa or Australia. Did that South African journey sort of really help you? I know you already said you're a good player of quick bowling, but this is a slightly different situation again.
1: I mean, I think over the years, having played on various different surfaces uh, against various different attacks, it gives you the experience required to play in different venues. And I think having been to Australia before, left under a little bit of a cloud, I was looking forward to going back to Australia and actually scoring runs and doing as well as I can against uh, an Australian team, which initially was in transition after they had lost a few players to a South African rebel team as well.
0: You said when you played against the West Indies that as a team you were sort of thinking to yourself that you were trying not to lose. 86-87, both of those England and Australian teams were in sort of a weird space. Did you go over as a team thinking that you had a very good chance of beating Australia then? To be honest, I was only just too delighted to be back in the squad. And I think every English
1: cricketer's dream is to tour Australia. So for me, that was just a dream come true that I was on the plane going to Australia to play cricket. I didn't really think about what the result was going to be, you know, what my form was going to be. I was just fairly confident in my abilities on pitches over there that I was going to be able to score some runs.
0: You averaged 69.57, absolutely, you know, blitzed the series, made uh, well over 400 runs. I want to take you through, you probably talked about the series a million times and, the you know, all the different stories. What well, I was really interested in it, is your plans for each bowler because there's a couple of very good bowlers and a couple of very interesting bowlers that Australia had in their team. So, for instance, Bruce Reed, people don't really remember him now outside of the 12th Man tapes and his body falling apart, but Bruce Reed was really even before a Akram, maybe the prototype of modern left-arm bowlers. He was fairly fast, but also incredibly skillful, which a lot of left-arm bowlers weren't at that point. How did you plan for Bruce Reed? Because there wasn't really any Bruce Reeds around before him. Again, I think you're assuming that the plans
1: that we put in place are akin to the plans that are put in place nowadays. You know, oh, no, the- no, no, no.
0: I'm, I'm not. I was actually more thinking what you did once you saw him, because your your cricket brain still would have had to tick over. I know it's not the same as what your son would go through, but what I mean is, like, once you've seen him a couple of times, you must be thinking, well, I will have to come up with a different method of playing against him than I would against other bowlers, because there aren't that many six foot seven left arm bowlers.
1: So, uh, you know, I think from my point of view, the fact that he was tall, he was fairly gangly. I likened it a little bit to facing Joel Garner, who he got additional bounce out of pitches. And therefore I was assuming that he was going to get some additional bounce. Okay. It's from a different angle, but you still had to be able to cope with someone who was going to get a little bit more bounce out of the pitches. He didn't swing the ball very much. So that was uh, in my favor. And I think, all left-handers have a, a little bit of advantage in that there were more right-handers facing the left-armers. And therefore, my strength being on my legs, every time he erred in line, I was able to work him through the mid area. So, you know, I felt leaving the ball, I was always one who wanted the bowler to bowl to me. And if he bowled the ball outside the off stump, I believe that was wasted energy on his part. So I would leave it alone. Therefore, it encouraged him to bowl more at me, and and I was able to work him off my legs more often than not.
0: So, one of the other bowlers who is slightly more famous, although probably wasn't anywhere near as good a bowler as Bruce Reed, was Merv Hughes. It was a very young, interesting Merv Hughes that you went up against. He was basically almost an outswing bowler who tried to project a, well, a certain angriness without maybe having the pace to back it up. In some ways, he was almost like a traditional English bowler, but like, with more Australian anger sort of put into him is that a fair way that you sort of came across him
1: yes I think so but again he was very early in his career and hadn't built up the confidence that we would see in years to come and therefore tried to be aggressive on the field verbally as well as uh, bowling wise without having anything to back it up and sure enough in a couple of years time he was much more confident and a much better bowler, and was picking up wickets on a, a regular basis. He was. It was very early in his career that he uh, faced
0: us on this 86, 87 tour. When you faced him then, and I think he took his wickets at around 40, so he didn't particularly have a lot of success. Did you think that in the next couple of years he would be torturous to England batters, or were you thinking he was more hot air at that point?
1: I, to be honest, I wasn't projecting forwards uh, at any stage. I was focused very much on this particular series, and you know, trying to do as well as I could against the bowling that was in front of me.
0: It's remarkable when you look at the the sort of personalities from this particular Australian team. One of the other players was Greg Matthews, who you went up against. Now he's an off-spinner, and you're a left-hander. He would have been at least hoping to have some success against you. I don't think he took very many wickets at all in this series. Again, he would have been, I assume quite vocal, as he tended to be. I don't think you even got dismissed against him. Did you find him particularly easy to face? or
1: You know, when you look at the pitches that we were playing on, Perth hardly moved off the seam or, you know, as a spinner off the pitch at all. Adelaide was very flat. Melbourne he played in, but of course they didn't get enough runs in the first innings, so we got a fairly big advantage and didn't bat in the second innings. And then I think he was left out in Sydney where Peter Taylor came in and he got wickets. So it was a funny one from Greg Matthews. I, afterwards, I got on really well with him and I've had uh, a good friendship with him ever since. But yeah, he
0: was an interesting character on the field of play. Just a nice guy. The other sort of main bowler that Australia had was Peter Sleep, which was the leg spinner. It's funny that you say that You know, the pitchers weren't in favour of the spin bowlers because Australia went with... Well, three spin bowls in the series, as you mentioned. Peter Taylor came in surprisingly for that last test. Peter Sleep, I've always thought had one of the most interesting actions of all time. There were so many moving parts coming in, but he was also a very, very good bowler, and obviously went on to be quite a good coach in South Australia as well. Um, how did you find facing someone like him?
1: I see. My strength is not against spin, as as I pointed yeah. out. But uh, as a leg spinner, I felt I didn't read him from the hand. I read him basically as the ball was coming down the pitch, so try to work out which way the ball was going to turn. And Actually, I found him relatively easy to read. That doesn't mean to say that I'm going to come dancing down the pitch and smash him all over the place, because I can read which way the ball's going to turn. Again, I was a knicker and nudger, so I was able to play the ball off the pitch knowing roughly which way the ball was going to turn, so he didn't scare me a great deal. And, you know, it, the, again, the pitches, although they turned more for a leg spinner because they put more action on the ball, it didn't really bother me that much when he came on to bowl.
0: It was interesting when I went through the series, the bowler that dismissed you the most was Steve Waugh, who's probably the most almost traditional English bowler that Australia had in that particular lineup. But I'm assuming that's just because he was coming on at third and fourth change and you already made runs up by that point. That particular series, it, you know, it's why I want you on the podcast There's a... Obviously, a very good um, podcast series that you're on at the moment, you know, about that 1986-87 series. That became sort of the high point of your career. Obviously, you went back to Australia, didn't you? And you made another 100 another time as well. But it's almost like your batting was really suited, I would assume, for Australian and South African pitchers, maybe more so than some of the other pitchers that you played around the world, not just because of the spin, but maybe just as a general rule. Is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, I didn't score a 100
1: in international cricket in England. And you would have thought being an Englishman, I would know the English pitches better than I would know the overseas pitches. But you're right in your assessment that I actually preferred the pacer, bouncier pitches overseas than the sort of more green seeming type pitches in the UK, because I think it's down technique. You know, my technique wasn't great. It, it was okay. I didn't enjoy the ball moving around that much. So with the Australian and South African pitches. You know, I didn't move around very much and I was able to get away with a certain lack of
0: technique, I suppose. And as I said, that's kind of the high point of your career. You end up averaging 40. I think your test average is actually higher than your first class average. Usually, when that happens, it means you either pick too late or you were dispatched off too early. I think in your case, it was quite clearly that you were dispatched off too early. I mean, if you look at what happened with English cricket, from almost from that period on, it wasn't like there were a lot of guys out there averaging 40 with the bat in Test cricket. Obviously, you did have a bit of a form dip towards the end, but even so, it's always come about that that has a lot to do with the way that you behave, like you knocking the stumps down in Sydney and you know other moments where you showed dissent. Do you think that that is a legitimate reason why England moved on from you, your behaviour at that time?
1: I mean, it's difficult to know. I you know. I think we can all pick and choose players that we would have in teams and they would vary massively i think as i said earlier on the selectors were very much in a horses for courses type selection policy at that time and it was really only david graveney some years after uh, i left the scene that decided that they would pick certain players and stick with them for a really good period of time my test career was blighted by being selected and maybe not scoring as many runs as I would have hoped in two or possibly three matches and then getting left out. So, you know, whether my temperament, my passion for the game got the better of me and in the selectors' minds is a point mute point and difficult to uh, to judge, really.
0: And when you look back on your international career, do you think that you were fulfilled or do you think that it was frustrating? You talked about coming in and coming out and maybe not getting longer runs?
1: I think had I worked at my game like a Graham Gooch worked in his game, I could have got better. I could have played more matches. I'm just delighted that I actually made it to the international level, the England level, and played for a number of years at that level and had some success at that level. So I can't decry the fact that I got left out. I just enjoyed my time at that level.
0: Before, just one last question. That Graham Gooch point is very important because obviously he went on to make himself into this incredible player. In some ways, he changed modern batting with, the, you know, the backlifts and all these different things. Do you feel like you played the game and perhaps maybe, you know, you had the ability to do more? You know, did you feel that it was, you know, more of a job? Uh, were you of that kind of a professional or was it just you love playing cricket?
1: I love playing cricket. It wasn't a job for me. It was, I enjoyed playing the sport and and the bonus was that I got paid to play that sport. And to be honest, I've, I've continued to be enjoying the sport that I'm involved in now. And uh, it's never been a job. It's been a
0: pleasure. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Cheers, Darren. Thanks for listening. If you like cricket podcasts, it is worth listening to Audie's Inside the Tour podcast. If for no other reason then the more support podcasts like this receive, the more likely people will make more of them into the future. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. No, please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.